we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind, coming to you live from Medellin, Colombia, because why not? For this week's episode, we have another iteration in our hackathon series. If you haven't been following along, the theme for this year's policy hackathon is artificial intelligence, because of course it is. Today's episode features excerpts from our latest webinar on the intersections of AI and intellectual property, led by Foundry Fellow Akene Chuksokeke. She sits down with Franklin Graves, Technology Counsel at HCA Healthcare, Helena Gurevich of the Center for Art Law, and Ju Yun Han of NYU Law's Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy, and a partner at Eisenberg and Baum LLP in New York City. They get into copyright law's protections in the era of generative AI and its complications, how artists can contribute to the conversation, and what the U.S. Copyright Office is doing about it. Spoiler, there's some guidance out there, folks. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. My name is Ekena Chukso-Keke, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. So to begin with, IP and AI are very broad terms. We had an introductory AI 101 series two weeks ago, but for the purpose of our conversation today, like what is AI? Can we simply explain what it is and what specifically we're talking about today, Franklin? Yeah, artificial intelligence means a lot of different things. Simplistically, artificial intelligence is a concept that is attempting to have a machine or a computer mimic what a human can do from a thought process or from an action standpoint. Thank you. So today we're going to specifically talking about generative AI, which is a subset of AI. How do generative AI tools function? These models, they identify patterns within the existing data that's been fed into them. They have the models using these patterns uh, to generate new and original content, which sometimes can be infringing on other people's copyright, because obviously all the data that's been scraped from off of the internet is not in public domain. So at this point, I would then ask, what is copyright? What is IP? So IP basically refers to uh, creations of the mind, right? Uh, Artistic, literary works, um, inventions, symbols, anything and everything that kind of people are coming up with creative, their creative output, so to speak. It protects the original works of authorship. Uh, a song or a painting or any any piece of creative and original work created by humans. Human-created work. Okay. Um, we're going to get back to that soon. So we've defined IP, we've defined copyright, and also AI. So what does copyright law, which has been around forever, have to do with this seemingly new phenomenon of, you know, generative AI? Um, if I may just kind of jump in. Copyright, as of now, um, as the Copyright Registration Office has um, opined, um, it's only going to protect the rights of human-derived, human-created 
um, artworks. And that is very important because when we talk about rights and intellectual property, a property right is something that belongs to somebody, right? And there is a person who can exercise that right. If there is no person that can exercise that right, that right is futile, right? It's meaningless if you can't exercise it. Although, you know, there is a program that's made by a human being, there is a art that's not made by a human being. And so there is this great gap where, you know, litigation is now coming to bear um, and courts are trying to figure out what to do with that right and who owns that right. So is it legal? Because I think ChatGPT pretty much scraped most of the available information on the internet. So is this legal for them to just use available content on the internet for free? Like, is this legal? Is it illegal? If you're talking about web scraping to build a database um, or to compile a database, uh, then it begs this question of, are you exceeding the permitted access to a website uh, by going to a website for purposes of extracting the information, the content from that website? Um, and so currently, there are a slew of laws that could trigger this, whether it's the CFAA, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, um, or whether it is the terms and conditions that are on the website or something even on the technical side, if there's a robot.txt or if there's some other technical mechanism that is put in place, whether it is a, a login or some other type of uh, firm wall that prevents or intended to prevent somebody um, not exceeding the scope of their authorization on the website to take information from the website. Um, there's a whole host of scenarios um, and questions that raise legal issues. Uh, but then additionally, and outside of the context of just access and the right to access publicly available content, um, then it begs the question of, okay, then even if you can access that publicly available content, is it still subject to usage rights under copyright law? So just because you can access something doesn't necessarily mean that it's still not subject to copyright. So web scraping itself is not technically illegal, but it could still violate other laws, potentially, including copyrights. Um, I know that there was the Google Books case a while ago where Google was sued because they were scrape, not scraping, they were scanning books that were publicly available, books that are available on the internet to make them publicly available as Google Books, to make um, excerpts of them available. And Google was able to rely on the fair use defense in that case. I think the court found their use transformative. So do you think that today in 2023, with what companies like ChatGPT are doing, do you think there's a good chance they'll be able to rely on the Google Books defense, like fair use like Google Books did, or is it kind of different? I think the Google Books um, issue and and possibly the potential chat GPT issue about fair use is something that's going to be really stretched. Fair use doctrine um, is a very fact-specific issue. And so naturally, it'll be like a case-by-case um, scenario where courts are going to have to sit down and decide. And I'm not sure that we have the, uh, shame on me, but I'm not sure that court systems are... Uh, ready to handle millions of these cases and look at, okay, does this look like the computer copied this work or not, right? And I, I would just add, I, I think there there's not very many artists that can be out there and pinpoint exactly this is proof that my particular work was part of the training data that informed this output. But I think we're seeing in the Getty Image case against OpenAI, there, there, there are artifacts that override that are so prominent in the training material 
that's like a watermark, like the Getty image watermark, that it, it's going to pop up and crop up in in those types of images if certain triggers are are met. I also just kind of quickly wanted to add to Jayong's point uh, about the plaintiffs and the hurdles that they're facing, right? Uh, with uh, when it comes to generative AI infringement litigation. So it's not even like the legal hurdles, but technical hurdles as well. For example, right, the artist wants the platform to take down her artwork, for example, she is convinced that her artwork, the model was trained on the artwork, right? And there's no, as far as I know, and uh, I've read quite a bit of uh, research on that, there's no way it can be done as of today. I mean, you will have to retrain the model. But I think an important thing also to recognize is some services are implementing uh, technical measures to prevent an output from being, to use a copyright term, substantially similar to any of the training materials. And so that is one practical uh, implementation we're seeing um, to uh, alleviate some of the concerns <laughs> and, and reduce risk. Thanks, guys. And now I think it would be a good time to talk about the models themselves. In the case against Stable Diffusion, brought by Sarah Anderson and a bunch of other, a number of other artists, um, they're making the argument that these models are being trained on a lot of data and then they kind of like think back to that and they can just copy or create like a collage. So they're trying to make this argument that this machine has this endless memory and then it makes like a collage of sorts, you know, to create the new art. But then on the other hand, for people on the stable diffusion side, people are saying, well, that's not how the machine works, right? The machine isn't necessarily going to pick this element and that element is more like the machine has been taught how to think and it is thinking. So the machine isn't copying from memory. It's really just thinking like someone that has been trained, right? In a certain art. So just from your experience, like with litigation, observation of these cases, obviously we can't speculate and say we know what's going to happen, but how much of this is going to be decided based on the operation of the tech itself? Like are the courts going to look at how does this machine work and try to apply the law to that? Or they will be considering the other um, public policy um, reasons that you've already mentioned, which is the fact that it will be really, really hard um, to undo the, you know, the system or to retrain these models because they've already been trained. I think you're asking the court, look, we, we created this machine that's going to think on its own. And then whatever is observed is going to be interpreted as some new sort of inspiration for the machine. And how is that, you know, ever a copying work, right? If, if we set that standard so high and we apply it to humans, then, you know, the policy that you're referring to, which is it's going to stifle humans from creating any art. Because, I mean, if we think about it, like if I were to draw something of, of this, um, you know, this apparatus that I have here, and I drew it, it's, I can claim copyright, right? And it doesn't have to be like, oh, I uh, interpreted this object into like some super fashionable work. I mean, it doesn't take a lot for a right to be copyrighted at the moment. But if we're imposing a super high standard on machines, then that is a problem for for stifling creativity issues, right? Um, I'm I'm very curious to know what would come out of such argument. Elena, you mentioned this earlier that the Copyright Office said um, has come out to say that 
for copyright to be in a work to be protected, like a property right also, as Juyon um, explained earlier, like it has to be held by a human being. But then what happens when generative AI output infringes, right? So who do we think should be held responsible um, if, you know, a human being prompted the creation of that, but then they don't actually own the property right in that infringing work? So um, when it comes to the outputs, right? Um, the question is who owns them? And that might depend on the platform, right? Uh, the person is using and you have to look to the terms of uh, terms of conditions of the platform. Some platforms are freely granting all the rights in the output to the users. And in that case, the work is yours. You can do whatever you want with it. And sort of the platform is just transferring all the liability from them to the user. Some some platforms are not doing this, and uh, again, it's gonna it's gonna depend on a, on on a, it's a case by case basis, I would say as well. But uh, the U.S. Copyright Office and everybody here is aware of this. Obviously, it has been one of the main driving forces of kind of just. Uh, making making things a little bit more clear for us all where the generative AI and uh, copyright law stand on it. And it's been very, at least very helpful, kind of just let's just net, uh, make the waters less muddy, I would say, right? And so where the cop U.S. Copyright Office stands as of today is the works that were generated by AI are not uh, to be copyrighted on their own, right? And I'm referring obviously to Chris Kostanova's case. So in uh, the case of Chris Kostanova, they uh, created the work uh, called Zary of the Dawn. Uh, it's a graphic novel and they used uh, generative AI to create the images and the, the they filed the the work to be, uh, they filed the, for copyright registration to the U.S. Copyright Office. And in the beginning, the work was registered and given copyright. But when the U.S. Copyright Office became aware of the fact that the images were AI-generated, they uh, canceled the registration. And uh, then they issued their guidance on that, saying, in the end, the uh, U.S. Copyright Office registered the novel as a whole, right? And the uh, arrangement of the images in the work, but not the images themselves, like the image that was AI generated cannot be copyrighted by itself on its own, right? Only the compilation of the images, so. And uh, that's kind of just what where we stand today. If I use DALI or Stable Diffusion to generate an image and I go to a US Copyright Office and be like, Let's just, let's do this, let's register, and they won't be giving me any copyright in that. So anybody will be free to use my work because there was not sufficient, sufficient original and creative input from me as a human being, according to the U.S. Copyright Office. So it again, it, where we stand today, I mean, in my opinion, might not be a very, very popular one, but I think like with, if an input, like if the, uh, prompt would be creative and sufficient, sufficient enough, long enough, kind of just you've been thinking so much about this, you know, and just it kind of just 
and captures everything, whatever you had in your head, like your idea of the image you want to see, I think it could be copyrighted. I mean, the output of that. So, but again, I'm not the U.S. Copyright Office, so I can't speak for them. But, oh, the fun fact, and everybody's aware, again, of that probably, that the U.S. Copyright Office mentioned that the, while the images can be copyright, uh, copyright, but the prompt itself might be. So, again, they are not aware that any prompt were kind of just uh, somebody filed for U.S. Uh, copyright registration for a prompt, but Maybe somebody should, you know, and we'll see where it's going to go. We need more. We need more cases like that. We need more people kind of just bar barging in and filing their work and just kind of, you know, bringing some some fresh ideas and uh, fr fresh conversations into this. So I, I think it's very important. And I would probably push back a little bit and disagree to to an extent. Please. Um, <laughs> uh, in terms of that that question of the the human authorship element um because yes I, I certainly agree with the fact that prompts prompt engineering that whole process of of learning how a tool or a system works is 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 um to a degree there there's a level of artistic or technical skill required and so the copyright office like like we just said yesterday on a call did acknowledge that and although they're not aware of a use case right now or a submission for registration of a prompt Theoretically, it could be subject um, uh, to copyright protection for the prompt itself. But I think one of the bigger issues that I'm still seeing is the lack of control, kind of like what we've been talking about up until this point, the lack of control over the, the AI tool or the system of tools that, that, that combine together power a generative AI tool. Um, there, there's missing that ability to really understand how the output is going to work and how it's what you're going to get on the other side. And so that's where like examples of like the, the Raya Badan uh, with Chris is they used um, the prompt included uh, the name of Zendaya, an actress. And it was because of the fact of in order to get an output that maintained the same look of a character consistently enough to have different panes or have different images, you have to have some reference. Otherwise, you have no control over the tool. Um, and I think that that's the same case in some of the newer registrations that are being pursued as well. And that uh, that's what the Copyright Office has been telling us is, for, from their standpoint, you lose that human creation, that human authorship in, in the process along the way of using a tool like that, because you give that up. You're then passing that on to a machine. Um, and again, that's very specific to certain types of text image or prompt-based um, machines, uh, but that that's kind of the alternate take, I would say, on it. Um, um, Ekin, I, I just wanted to put a point out there. Um, I think what Franklin says is very informative in terms of the ability to control. You know, right now, the ability to control doesn't belong to the regulators. It doesn't belong to the um, owners of the copyrighted artwork. Um, so perhaps creating a new kind of art market um, you know, that is based upon this principle of AI generated art. And I think that's where control could come in because there are consumers that drive the market and thus control what the supply and demand is. And that's how, in some ways, you know, the pricing and the value of artworks will um, come forth. 
And the value is essential to determining what is a property, right? Because we can say intellectual property, I, I own this thing, but you know, if it if the public doesn't see any value to it, right? Whatever I generated from the machine, then I'm gonna be ending up with zero money, right? And so the value um, of a right is also very interconnected with um, what the art market demands. And what the art market demands is actually something that can be controlled by individual consumers and art aficionados and um, collectors and such and such. In doing that, though, in order to hijack you know, a piece of artwork um, and make that more valuable than others, I think marketing tools come in, right? And when we say, look, here is a, a jug, you know, that emulates Picasso, um, you know, it doesn't at all. But if I were to market it in that way, then I necessarily have to reference somebody that is of value, an artist that is of value, even in a machine learning process, you know, I have to say, hey, this artwork, I put it into the machine and it it's like a Rembrandt, right? And then that might give it superiority in the market. But doing that kind of gives more of a of an anchor to say, hey, you marketed this and you use something as a reference. So maybe it's in the marketing tools that we can also look to when we look at infringement, not just about copyright, but it can be a consumer protection issue. That's where they value whether a machine-based art is going to be of something that we consider valuable as a property right or not. I just, yeah, again, quickly wanted to add, like I, I totally agree the U.S. copyright law is sort of notoriously market-driven, right? It more tends to more protect uh, artists' economic rights versus in the EU, right? And the UK, it's more uh, on the moral rights side. Thank you. So which will bring me to the next question, which is, um, so how are artists, we've already alluded to this a bit, but how are artists responding? How are companies adapting to um the in-between place we are right now. So we don't have any decisions just yet resolving these pertinent issues. So how are artists responding and how are these companies as well adjusting their stance to, to accommodate people's concerns? On the one hand, I think artists are glad that there are tools that alleviate some of their labor, you know, when it comes to um, generating artwork, you know, when it also comes to generating like animation, from one piece of art. I mean, that can take a tremendous amount of uh, resources and manpower if you were to do it traditionally just by hand. Um, but now that you know there are ways to generate this, it could be um, of a way to alleviate the labor of artists. But at the same time, um, that means that if you're using um, AI tools just as tools, not in and of itself an artwork, it's something that I think artists are... Um, adapting too quickly and kind of welcoming as a tool. Um, but when it comes to that, um, replacing the originality of the artist's own artworks, um, I mean, I think there's sufficient um, pushback about it. Um, I, I'd be very interested to hear more from the ground if, if anyone has opinions about that as an artist or as a creator. I just, I just want to say, uh, sometimes I, I have this habit of kind of just diving deep into Discord and Reddit and just kind of, you know, feeling, like you said, the ground, talking to artists, kind of just subtly su su pulling people 
So what's your take on this and that? And Are you web scraping, Elena? Huh? You're web scraping for opinions? <laughs> uh, I would say, I would call it more like uh, intellectual poaching. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, the artist community has been just uh, formed by that. I would say people are so vastly polarized on this subject, and it's just it's been it's been very very sort of interesting to to see that people are clashing over that. Some artists are embracing the AI, and they are just kind of just immersed in that, and they're using that for their work every day. But on a different side. The artists are totally anti-AI and they're like, just let's ban the AI just altogether and just we'll be better off, you know. And obviously the uh, the artistic uh, communities, uh, I would say snobbish take on themselves, right? So like anyone who is not skilled enough to be an artist, to be called himself an artist, cannot call himself an AI artist. They're calling these people AI users, sort of like... you didn't do enough to kind of cross this line to be called an artist so which is like very very interesting if you ask me so the sentiment essentially is on the one side is just let's let's do it it's gonna make our work easier some of the artists are very very confident they'll be keeping their jobs because still the what clients are going for is sort of their creative ideas, right? Some artists saying are saying, so when the client comes to me, the only thing they have is just like a name of a project. That's it. And when they come to me, I work with them together. We work collaboratively on the project. So from that word, the, the name of the project, kind of like everything, everything grows, the images, the design, the concept, right? And the argument there is the AI can't do that. So usually when I'm about to use DALI or Stable Diffusion or any other platform, right? I already have an idea in my head. I already have a prompt. I already have something in my head that's just will generate an output, an image. I already sort of have this preconceived notion of something. But the argument on their side is my clients come here they have this name, they, they have nothing. They want me to kind of help them to, to be creative. So, and that's what AI is not capable of doing at the moment. The other side is just, let's ban it all together. We are better off of it. And funny, and the funny thing is a lot of the people from the, just judging by the comments, they're not even aware of how this technology works. Some people are like, let's ban AI. We don't need AI at all. We just, let's use YouTube. I like YouTube. I like how it works. But YouTube uses literally AI every day, like the algorithms, right? So how, uh, what videos you would like to watch, they're analyzing and they're doing this. They're doing that. AI has been involved in our lives for, for a very long period of time, which, which is funny because people, most of the people, I'm not aware of that. So again, I, I think educating is education is important on that matter. And critical thinking is more important than ever today. So it's just, yeah, it's 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 been a very, very interesting debate on there. And and I would caution from my standpoint, I would add, I would caution um against kind of this concept. I think what was mentioned earlier about the the labor involved i think that there it's this this concept of 
fast tracking the creation process. And that's something I think that we've dealt with as creatives for, for decades, for hundreds of years. Um, it, there are always new tools there are always new methodologies that can be used to create something. And so like to borrow from like copyright, it's like the sweat of the brow theory. Um, is there, is there sufficient effort involved? Um, and I think that that can change, um, from use case to use case. Um, and so for example, like, um, on like when we made a switch and, and computer animation came about, arguably it's easier because you're not having to frame by frame paint or draw a character's movements. But in reality, there's, there's a, there's a swap there of what the work involved is. It's the model creation. It's the programming that goes into it, the, the mathematics involved and in, in all the, the physics and, and all that. And, and another example is like Adobe character animator. Um, if you have a puppet, you can put a puppet in Adobe character animator and use your webcam and it will do facial recognition and body recognition to animate the character for you. That's what a lot of virtual um, YouTubers or VTubers use for their avatars. Um, it's, it's this question of, okay, well, are we looking at it from a human labor standpoint or are we looking at it from the creativity behind how these tools are used and how they're implemented? Um, and then the other, the other distinction here too is I think from what I'm seeing is the ethics behind it. I think there's a big call for artists or from artists to other artists and artists to big companies, tech companies, and, and like and outside of the tech sphere, just general companies to to ethically and sustainably source the training materials in a way that if the use case is going to be to have a uh, generative AI tool that competes with those artists, making sure they're fairly compensated. Um, if it's something that's like on the security side, if it's a model being developed to train and, and have security footage automatically reviewed to identify harmful objects or something like that. Does that really compete with an artist who is, or a photographer, and the the output that that might be very similar and and supplement a license for their work if somebody's using that to generate an image for their website and instead of using a stock photography company, that's a that's a missed license. So I think the use case really comes about in connection with how the training materials are gathered and whether there is appropriate payment or permission of some kind from the artist. So that's kind of what I'm saying. But I think in reality, I think we're moving to a place where it's gonna be impossible to not have access to these tools, whether it's Microsoft and Google putting them in everything from Office 365 or, or Microsoft 365 online and all that. Thank you guys. And I will just give you the opportunity to leave your final closing remarks. One thing people should take away from this conversation about IP and AI. I'll, I'll go first, I guess. So my takeaway would be um, there's been a tremendous surge in the interest about AI, right? The, there, there's been the hot topics for months and people, for the most part, at least the people I've interacted with, for the most part, they tend to uh, I would say, think of the AI as this existential threat, right? They, to the point they make it almost sentient, right? And I think that's a very, very bad approach. And uh, we need to stay focused. <laughs> we need to remember that we have the agency. AI is just still, as of today, we'll, we'll talk about it in a month. Maybe things will change. It's just a tool. And there's no way the robots are taking over and all that fun stuff, fun Hollywood stuff. So we need to be 
just active in the space. People need to educate themselves. People need to talk to other people who know about this stuff, you know, and just you have to be very, very uh, thoughtful about it because literally hundreds, hundreds of new AI models and just startups uh, are emerging every every week. New tools are being deployed every day, like tens, tens of them, tens of hundreds of them every week. So, and it's very, very, very important for people not to rush into that. Just people tend to kind of just, you know, jump into that without giving it a second thought, but there will always be privacy concerns, right? Uh, personal information, uh, some sensitive information if it's a corporation or a business. So people need to be very, 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 very thoughtful when they adopt and this these technologies in their everyday lives and their work life, especially. Yeah, I would say my takeaway builds upon what was just said. Education is, of course, a very important component of all of this, making sure, making sure that you're educated, people listening, I myself, like she said, like Elena just said, like next month, there's going to be something new. We have to learn it. We have to learn about it, uh, dissect it. Um, I would add to that, now is a time that policy is being crafted on this. We have the EU AI Act that's underway, but even in, especially in the US, like the, the corporate office just had listening sessions. There's opportunities with the USPTO on the patent and trademark side to give feedback. Voice your opinions, um, write about it, submit your questions or concerns to the copyright office or the patent and trademark office. They want to listen. Uh, your local Congress people, they want to listen. Um, you have a voice, and I would just want to encourage people to use it. But just again, as we've been talking about, making sure that you're coming at it from an educated perspective, um, but also sharing your unique perspective. We all have our own use cases, we all have our own um, backgrounds and kind of understandings of how this technology impacts us individually or the companies that we work for or that we own or that we run ourselves. So that's my takeaway is um, now is the time to voice your opinion. Now is the time to get out there and submit comments. Thank you guys. And my takeaway from all your brilliant um, submissions is that copyrights could um Copyright could have an impact on the way generative AI system works and the output of them, but then it's not the only thing, right? We have to think about, like, we have a lot of power. The art market has a lot of power in determining um, the value of these works. And there are just other factors at play beyond copyright. So as Franklin said, um, we should all be educated and make our voices heard. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, really appreciate it. Bye. Thank you, guys. Thanks for moderating. Bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show. And this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.